I, uh, I am entitling this uh, Easter the uh, linchpin of the Christian faith. And I've, you know, I just took it for granted that the word uh, linchpin was a good one, but I, I decided I'd, I'd look it up. What exactly does it mean? Is it a good word for what I'm trying to say? And, uh, and uh, those of you who are mechanically inclined, I think you will kind of get the significance. This is what it said. Uh, it's a pin that goes through the end of an axle outside the wheel to keep the wheel from coming off. Sounds pretty good to me. I'm a farm boy, so I know a little bit about wheels and stuff like that and axles. But, you know, this wheel is on an axle, and this is the pin that keeps it there. And then a more general meaning uh, that, if, uh, that went with it went like this. And this is more for our purposes. Anything serving to hold together the parts of a whole. Anything that holds together the parts of a whole. Lynchpin. I think that's exactly what the resurrection of Jesus is to the Christian faith. Ravi Zacharias, in his book, Can Man Live Without God?, tells about an arts building at Ohio State University. It's a building that has been branded America's first deconstructionist building. He says that when you enter the building, you encounter stairways that go nowhere, pillars that hang from the ceiling without purpose, and angled surfaces configure, configured to create a sense of dizziness. The architect designed this building to reflect life itself, senseless and incoherent, the capriciousness of the rules and the capriciousness of the rules that organize the built world. And says Zacharias, when the rationale was explained to me, I had only one question. Did he do the same with the foundation? And he says there was laughter in response to my question, which unmasked the double standard of our deconstructionists, as suppose, their theory. <laughs> unmasked. Did he do the same with the foundation? Unless an edifice has a foundation that is built according to the objective standards of sound engineering, it simply won't stand. It'll collapse, it'll fall. And I think you can see as we look at 1 Corinthians 15 that that is really what Jesus is saying about the resurrection of Jesus. Let's stand together and we will uh, look at these verses from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. We can say them together as we uh, follow on the screen. We're reading from uh, beginning at verse 12. But if it is preached, follow us, read with me. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, 
for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ is raised, he is raised indeed. Please be seated. See, the city of Corinth, where Paul is, you know, he's writing to the Corinthians. And uh, in the city of Corinth, there was a, a Greek culture that did not believe in a physical resurrection. Some kind of life after death? That was okay. But in a real physical body? No way. And this thinking in their society had influenced the thinking of the believers too. That's the way it is, right? When trends are heavy out there, it has an effect on us too. And uh, so it was with them. And so here Paul argues in very absolute terms that the physical resurrection of Jesus is at the very core, at the very essence of Christianity. Take out the resurrection and the whole faith system unravels. It collapses. The building falls down and there's nothing left. Because the whole Christian faith and life, faith and life, hinges upon Jesus' resurrection. For it is essential first for the message. Paul says in verse 14 here, he says, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. Our preaching is useless. See, the Christian movement, the Christian church, uh, was built by our Lord through the communication of a message, a proclamation, preaching, a message called the gospel. And our young people talked about what the gospel is a few minutes ago. But it's uh, gospel means good news, and it's specifically the good news the apostles proclaimed following the death, resurrection, and ascension, and the sending of the Spirit. And uh, the message was all about Jesus, about his identity, that he was the Christ and that he is the Lord, about what he did, that he died for sins and that he rose again. But it was also a message about response. Uh, he says here in this, early in this chapter, upon which you have taken a stand. They, they made a response to the gospel. And uh, in a very clear, simple, nutshell kind of way, the response was to turn away from their old way of life and to give allegiance to the risen Lord. And that is still the gospel today. Someone has put it this way, that God has made Jesus the emperor. I like that. That God has made Jesus the emperor and that he plans to bend the cosmos to fit his agenda and not the other way around. God intends to bend the whole world, the 
cosmos, the universe, to fit with Jesus' agenda and not the other way around. And that was the message that was being proclaimed that, hey, it's not Caesar, it's not your emperor, it's not anyone else, but it's the risen Lord. And so the response was they had to turn to him and give allegiance to him. That's still our message. You know, you want to look at the most essential aspect of the gospel that has to do with changing allegiance. And of course, if you're brought up in a, in, a, in a church that teaches that you're God's children from the get-go and you follow that, you may not be aware of a time and place when you made that turnaround. And even us who are Baptists, uh, the turnaround is probably in many cases not very uh, radical, not very different because they're brought up in the faith. But the essence of the response that is required from all of us is that he becomes our emperor, not Caesar. Not things, but giving our allegiance to him. Well, that's the message. And Jesus is talking here about the resurrection of, uh, of Jesus. And he says, with his uh, brutal logic here, not only is our preaching futile, but we've been leading people astray. More than that, verse 15, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. Think of that for a moment. Think of that in what's going on around the world today. All those sermons, those choirs, those soloists, those congregations singing together in the English-speaking world, songs such as Christ Arose or Christ the Lord is Risen Today or Alive, Alive, or I Know That My Redeemer Liveth and many others. And, uh, and the many people who recite a certain creed regularly on a Sunday, and especially today, I believe in Jesus Christ who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. He descended into Hades. The third day he arose again from the dead. All of those proclamations by millions of Christians around the world, fairy tales. Myths, sincere untruths, leading people astray. And all of us who are part of it, we are, Paul says, we're false witnesses if Christ is not risen. But it's not only true of the message, it's not only essential to the message, but it's the same of the faith, he says. Our preaching is useless And the word there is the idea of meaningless, empty, without basis, and so is your faith. Useless. And then in uh, verse 17 he says, uh, your faith is futile. And there the idea of uh, futile is the idea of unproductive or the outcome, you know, without effect or result. Fruitless. Christ never arose. Then our proclamation is invalid, but because our proclamation is invalid, the response of faith to that proclamation is likewise not valid. Useless. Fruitless. You know, today we are inclined to uh, think of faith so much as simply something that's subjective, right? How you feel about things and what you believe and inclined to uh, have an attitude that says, well, you know, faith is good. It doesn't matter what you have faith in, but it's good to have faith. You know, if you want to believe that uh, God is real and that miracles are possible and that helps you to get through life, well, I'm glad for you. 
Uh, or uh, if you believe in the tooth fairy or Santa Claus or Elvis is still alive and that makes life more pleasant, that's also good. Whatever it takes, believe what you want. Truth for you is truth for you. Truth for me is truth for me. But that is not the meaning of faith that the apostle is describing here. But he argues that it is really a matter of whether or not it is factually true. That however strong, however unshakable, however passionate your subjective faith might be, it is all irrelevant unless it is true as an objective fact that actually took place in history. That's what he's saying. Verse 17 says you're still, your faith is uh, futile, fruitless. You're still in your sins. And then he goes on to show not only is the message wrong and invalid, not only is the resurrection of Jesus essential to the message, to the proclamation, and to your faith, but then he says it's also true of our hope. Verse 18, he says, Then those also who have fallen asleep... In Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to be pitied. Fallen asleep. Hope. Those who have fallen asleep in Jesus are lost. And he says we're to be pitied more than all other people. I'm sure, some, I'm sure many of us here, probably all of us, at some time or another we've been comforted in a time of bereavement because of this hope. I know that when my dad passed away, I was only 20 years old, and uh, this hope meant everything to me. It made all the difference. And I was assured, based on his responses, that he was in heaven, he was with the Lord. And then, uh, in 1991, actually, my mother passed away. And again, that same hope. Now I'm a middle-aged pastor, and somehow that motivated me, re-inspired me that, yes, I want to continue to proclaim the message of the resurrection. Something about her passing, something about facing death in such a personal way, it has a way of sort of rekindling and uh, re-motivating you in this time. But Paul, honest and brutal realist that he is, he will not concede any hope in bereavement. He's not prepared to just pretend. But he's saying rather, unless Jesus really did arise from the dead, then our faith, our hope, proclamation, it's all in vain. But you say, well, maybe, maybe Christians are still better off with this belief even even if it is only wishful thinking. And I'm saying that in a setting like us, you know, where we are, where we live, where it doesn't really cost that much to be a Christian, that might very well be true. But you know, when this was written, in the early church, being a Christian really cost. When the church first began, it struggled through periods of persecution for 300 years. And every Sunday when the believers gathered, they took time to embrace and to love each other because they did not know who might be martyred for the faith before their next gathering. And it's true today in many places. Serious 
persecution of believers. And I mentioned last week, it's not difficult. I, I religiously read uh, two periodicals, and the one is Christianity Day and the other is Faith Today, which is a Canadian uh, magazine. But it's almost in every edition there are examples of serious persecution. And I have a note here of what happened three years ago in uh, Kenya. In Al, Al-Shabaab, attackers left at least 147 people dead at Garissa University campus. And then the news report, news reports tell us they were especially targeting Christians. It costs to be a Christian in many places in the world. But Paul is arguing for what? For nothing. If Christ is not risen. Because this hope is invalid. He says in verse 19, we are to be pitied among all people. And he goes on saying in verse 32, you know, if it's only for this life we carry hope, we might as well do what he says in verse 32. Let us us eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die. Live selfishly. Get all you can this time around, for that's all that there is. If Christ is still in the tomb. Ah, but that's arguing hypothetically. Paul knows that Jesus really is alive. Verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Or you see the risen Lord confronted Paul on the Damascus road. You know, in a way, I'm glad. It's to our advantage that he was so reluctant, that he fought against it, because it took something really dramatic to turn him around. (laughs) And of course, we have all kinds of theories of, you know, what was going on, and maybe he was fighting against the pricks and sort of knew deep down that he was wrong. I don't know about that. I just knew it took quite uh, quite an experience. He had to be shaken off the horse, off his horse, fall on the ground, blind for three days. And uh, and then he he heard the voice of Jesus saying, why are you persecuting me? Yeah, Paul knew. And it's the same with the apostles. They were witnesses. They were there and they knew that the tomb was empty. And they actually met the risen Jesus several times over the next 40 days. Many encounters. This was no fabrication. They were certain about this. So certain, so certain about it that they were willing to give up their lives for it and most of the apostles eventually did. Most of them were martyred. Paul himself, tradition tells us that he too was executed for his faith, martyred at the end. Here's a distinction. Many people, many people are willing to die for what they believe to be true, even if it's not. And we see this on a regular basis. Many of those suicide bombers, terrorists, they actually believe that what they're doing is the right thing. Kill all the infidels that they can. They believe it's true, so they give up their life. But it's another thing to give up your life for something that you know to be false, okay? See, the apostles would have known if this was a fabrication. 
because they could have found the body. The body would have been someplace and they would have access to the body. They knew the tomb was empty and they had these encounters with Jesus. People are prepared to give their life for what they believe wrongly to be true, but they're not willing for the sake of something they know to be a lie. Well, Paul continues, Christ is risen, but it's not only for himself, but he says he's become the first fruits, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What does the first fruit mean? Well, in Judaism, the first fruits were the first portion of the new crop that was taken as a sign. They were a sign and a promise of the remainder of the crop that was to come. And as a farm boy, I understand that concept. You know, at the beginning of the harvest, we might run our combine for a couple of hundred yards just to get a sample, okay? And it's amazing what you can tell from just a little sample. It tells you whether it's dry enough to harvest. It tells you something about the yield. And it certainly tells you something about the quality of the grain. First fruits. And here, Paul is teaching that Jesus has risen, but he's just the sample. He's just the first fruits. Those of us who are in him, if we're Christians, our life is in him. And the rest is to follow. We are to receive the same kind of physical bodies that he was given at the time of his resurrection. All, and, when he, and that will happen when he returns and sets all things right. Essentially, when he returns to set things right, he's going to undo the damage and the pain that was caused by sin. I appreciate the words of N.T. Wright in his book, Surprised by Hope. And this is what he says, The genuine Christian hope is the hope for God's renewal of all things, for his overcoming of corruption, decay, and death, for his filling of the whole cosmos with his love and grace, his power and glory. Therefore, what does that all mean? It means that rather than the message being without basis and meaning, being meaningless, being futile, it's the most meaningful truth in the world. And we are not false witnesses, but we're ambassadors for God with the most important message on earth, the message of reconciliation, the message of forgiveness, the message of grace, and the message of eternal life. And rather than our faith being empty and without basis, it is built on solid, objective truth. And rather than Christians being without hope, we have the best hope of all, for we live as those who realize that this is not all that there is, but that the best is yet to come. And so, because of Easter, the call of Jesus to, to deny self, to carry the cross, it makes sense, and it becomes wisdom. Because of Easter, the call to love our neighbor, to forgive our enemy, to be the servant of others, is wisdom. Because of Easter, the call to stand up and be identified with Christ is wisdom. And because of Easter, we can hang in there even when life sucks, and it often does. We can endure as Jesus did. Hebrews 12, who it says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. 
And uh, King James uh, goes on, it goes on to say, despising the shame of the cross. And the word despise isn't the same as hatred. It's not simply that he hated the shame, but he looks down on it. To despise someone is to trivialize someone. And he just was able to look down on the shame of the cross because he was looking to the joy that would come later. And on that basis, he was able to endure. And so because of Easter, we don't lose hope in tragedies and the many losses that come with aging. I was, uh, I was amused uh, last week at a ministerial when I had a coffee mug and it had a list of things that uh, tells you when this is happening, you're having a middle life uh, crisis, midlife crisis. Of course, I knew it wasn't about midlife. I knew it was about old age crisis, right? But one of the messages was when you realize that all of your old friends are old. <laughs> Sound familiar? Last week we talked on the phone to a couple of our old friends and my goodness, they're in their 70s and of course at this age you deny that that is old. But you know, if you're really honest, yeah, they're old too then if they're in their 70s. <laughs> the, uh, we don't lose hope in the losses that come with aging, loss of friends, loss of loved ones, the loss of our health as our bodies deteriorate the facing of death itself. A pastor by the name of I.C. Gilhus tells about visiting a man on his 85th birthday. And as they were sitting down, he suddenly said to him, about my life, I could now write the two words, no more. My wife is no more. My friends are no more. My freedom is no more. I sit here in a home for the aged. My house is no more. My health is no more. My good hearing, no more. My walking so easily, no more. My memory is accurate, no more. All, no more, no more, pastor. That's reality. And it's sad. If this life is the main thing, and it is sad because at the time, that's what we're experiencing. But you know, Easter calls us to look beyond the limitations of our current lives to what is to come. I appreciate singer Carolyn Arends. I'm still looking forward to hear her sing. I don't know what she sounds like even, but she's a wonderful writer. And she tells about the dying of her father, she says at the end he was wearing what his doctors called the Star Wars mask, a high-tech oxygen system that covered most of his face. Pneumonia made his breathing extremely labored, but that didn't keep him from chatting. He would yank off the mask when they didn't understand him. After several hours, he gave up on conversation. He started singing. What are you humming? My mom asked. He tried to answer through the mask, but then he had to yank it off again. With Christ in the vessel, I can smile at the storm. She says, my, <clears throat> my dad had learned it at camp the summer that he asked Jesus into his eight-year-old heart. And now, six decades later, hours before his death, that old camp song was still embedded in his soul and mind. <clears throat> and he was singing it 
at the top of his nearly worn-out lungs. Says Arends, Death unaddressed is the boogeyman in the basement. It keeps us looking over our shoulders and holds us back from entering joyously into the days that we are given. But dragged out from the shadows and held up to the light of the gospel not only loses its sting, it becomes an essential reminder to wisely use the life that we have. Because of Easter, we can look at death squarely in the face, even while we're healthy, knowing that it's coming. <clears throat> and so Easter confronts us with a daily choice, a daily choice. We can approach life each day with the aim you know, get all you can out of this life. Live for yourself. It's all you've got. Or we can approach each day making Christ and his kingdom our first priority. In the hierarchy of values, that being at the very top. True whether we're old or young, enjoying happy circumstances, or overwhelmed with hardships. In each case offering ourselves as we are in our situation for his service and for his honor. I note how Paul ends this chapter, sometimes referred to, I'm sure, as the resurrection chapter. He's, he says in verse 58, Therefore, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain because of the resurrection of Christ.